Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's good to have you today, uh, today uh, with us for our show. I'm actually in Nashville right now at my son's house. Uh, I think some of the folks in podcast land know that my son works at Covenant Presbyterian Church, uh, the PCA Church in Nashville that uh, was the location for the shooting. Yeah, uh, of course, my son is safe, and uh, he was just uh, sharing with Glenn and Tom and me that he wasn't actually aware of what was going on until he got out of the building. There was an alarm, and then he was able to uh, get out just essentially thinking this was a fire drill or something. And then when he was in the parking lot, he was informed as to what was going on. But anyway, I'm here at his house. I decided to swing by here because I happen to be in the southeast anyway, and Thought I'd drop in and spend a little time with the family. Um, anyway, if this is the first time you've tuned into the Theology Podcast, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, and I've written a number of things, and that's enough about me. So, uh, Tom, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, then we'll go to Glenn. Then I just have an uh, announcement I want to make about an event, and then we'll get into the topic of the show today. Um Tom Price. I teach systematic theology and Christian ethics uh, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. And uh, we have another grandparent here, so I'll let that lead me to the uh, the happy face grandparent, new grandparent in the middle there. <laughs> Take it away, right, Glenn. Right. <laughs> yeah, I am Glenn Sunshine. I am a retired history professor, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and Ministry Associate at Reflections Ministries, and a first-time grandfather. Um, my, yeah, congratulations, Glenn. The day we're recording this, Grace Kune Lynn Karoma uh, is one week old. Nice, so, nice. Well, that's great. I just was with one of my granddaughters a minute ago. She was actually here before we started recording, and everybody got to see her calling me Pop Pop. <laughs> her name for me. It's precious. Anyway. So before we jump into the show, I know some of the folks out there who are regular listeners to the show know about an event that we're having in Battleground, Washington, the traditional fatherhood intensive in early May, the 5th and 6th. But another event that, we'd, that I'd like you to know about is something that's coming up in Miami. It's the Thank God for Bitcoin conference. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be speaking at it alongside Zuby and a number <laughs> of other guys. So it's, a, it's a, a, something that I'd like to help you uh, kind of learn about in case you'd like to be a part of that. Um, so throughout history, of course, uh, we've seen decentralized approaches to uh, monetary uh, uh, exchange, and um, it wasn't as though uh, governments invented money. Uh, it's more the case that governments took over the money and created monopolies. Um, but things have been decentralized uh, in different points in human history with regard to money, and the uh, event, thank God for Bitcoin, was founded by a church planter, a former church planter in Uruguay, who experienced firsthand the effects of currency devaluation mm. in the lives of Venezuelan immigrants who fled their country after watching their money become worthless before mm. their very eyes. And that's uh, anybody who has any uh, kind of uh, uh, recollection of just how well off the Venezuelans were just not too long ago, you can see how quickly things can go from good to bad. Hmm. Anyway, thank God for Bitcoin exists to help Christians understand what Bitcoin is, why it matters, and the many surprising ways that it is being used for the glory of God and the good of people everywhere. So uh, this is an invitation from the people who organized the event. Join us in Miami, May 16th through 17th hmm. 
for the Thank God for Bitcoin 23 conference. I'm uh, one of the keynote speakers, uh, but there are going to be a number of other people, pastors, missionaries, uh, and some of the most respected names in the Bitcoin industry. Tickets are available at tgfb.com. And those include a live stream option for those who can't attend. And use the code PUGCAST. (laughs) (laughs) PUGCAST to get 15% 15 off of your ticket. (laughs) All right. So there you go. So let's get into today's show, Glenn. What are we we talking about? Well, actually, before we get into today's show, I'd just like to throw in one other comment. If you're not paying really close attention to what's going on in the economy, um, de-dollarization and things like that, you need to be. Um, we should probably do a show on that at some point. But um, yeah. things are a lot shakier than most people realize, especially for the dollar right now. Hmm. So yeah, I've got a I've got a bank regulator in my church uh, who disappeared for two weeks uh, during the period in which SVB in Silicon Valley shut down, and we all wondered where he was. And then we figured it out. Ah. He was shutting them down, <laughs> and uh, I've talked to him, and he says exactly what you said. So that, that mean what we're talking about is not speculation. This is not alarmism. This is not just a bunch of crazy people who live in bunkers eating spam and stocking up on ammo. You know, we're <laughs> we're talking about some stuff that's real. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, the topic today is actually it goes in a bit of a different direction. Uh, I'm building this off of a Substack by Naomi Wolf called Have the Ancient Gods Returned. Hmm. That in itself is working off of a book by Jonathan Kahn called uh, Return of the Gods. Um, What I will say about Jonathan Kahn is I'm not a big fan of his. Uh, Hmm. I find his writing rather tedious, frankly. Um, Way, way overwritten. And I think he overruns some of his evidence, particularly in this book. But he makes some very uh, challenging points along the way. Uh, I'd actually recommend Naomi Wolf Substack as a, I would think, a better introduction to the, the idea that we're talking about here. And we'll link it in the show notes. What Wolf, Naomi Wolf is sort of a, um, well, secular Jewish woman, a more or less traditional liberal up until COVID. And she was a very, very heavy critic of the COVID uh, vaccine, so-called vaccine. Um, And uh, that put her on the outs with a lot of people. But in any event, she looked at the world and said, basically, look, this place has gone insane. What we're seeing are governments around the world moving in absolute lockstep. We're seeing the media suppressing any alternative views and moving in lockstep. We're seeing big tech doing the same thing. And she said, as she looked at all of this, she said, this is something that it it, it just isn't possible for this to have been coordinated by human beings. We're not that good. Um, And this convinced her that what was going on in the world was actually the operation of a powerful supernatural force, um, which, by the way, she then concluded that must mean God exists too, because if there's this very powerful evil force, there must be a very powerful good force as well. So she's actually moving toward belief in God um, because of this. 
And then she ran into Jonathan Kahn's book. For those of you who don't know Jonathan Kahn, he's a Messianic rabbi, um, actually back from my old stomping grounds in New Jersey. Um, mm. And um, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not a particular fan of his writing, um, and he overruns some of his evidence in the book. But what he says basically is that the Western world, starting with Judaism and then especially with Christianity, had set up an effective covenant with God, not a formal covenant, but a covenant with God, where we have abandoned, rejected all of the ancient gods in favor of worshiping the one true God. And he argues that this has provided a level of protection over Western culture uh, over the millennia. Um, However, now as we are systematically rejecting this. I mean, you can look at the European Union refusing to include any reference to Christianity in their constitution over the objections of Poland, you know, even as a historical fact about forming Europe. Uh, We can look at all the the craziness going on in the U.S. Um, By rejecting God, what it did, according to Kahn, and, and Wolf is sort of picking up on this, is it opened the door for the ancient pagan gods to return who he sees working out of uh, the Hebrew, uh, particularly he sees as genuine entities, genuine beings. They've been pushed on the margins for a long time, but now they're coming back and they're coming back in force. Um, Baal, Khan's argument on Baal is notably weak, um, but he sees a trilogy, Baal, Asherah, and Molech. Uh, The Molech comparison has been made with abortion for years. Um, Baal... Like I said, his arguments on Baal are, are weak. Asherah, though, or Ishtar, uh, goes by a bunch of different names depending on where you are. It's really spooky, the level of correspondence you see with um, the old Ishtar cult and what's going on with um, the sexual revolution, LGBT, especially transgender stuff and so on. Um, so his, his argument basically is that these ancient gods are now reasserting themselves in the world. Wolf doesn't go quite that far, but uh, she says whether these are entities or powers or uh, principles or something, there's something clearly at work that in, well, in Christian terms is demonic, that yeah. is driving culture today. Um, and that is now being allowed to reemerge with the, uh, with the um, turning away from monotheism. Hmm. So that's the basic thesis. Yeah, this, uh, this re- uh, brings to mind uh, some other notable public intellectuals who are, I think, saying similar things. I think about Paul Kingsnorth uh, and some of the things he's been talking about, particularly as relate as if this relates to AI and his mm-hmm. uh, concerns that there may actually, actually be demonic uh, spiritual uh, uh, activity, you know, in this sort of sphere. Uh, and other things that I've, I've picked up on from other writers who are, uh, I think, noting that there's, there's got to be more to this than just simply yeah. uh, a set of fads. Yeah. Um, because of the the self-destructive character of the stuff that we see and its irrationality. 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting because I, I I never liked the readings of, for example, Western Civ that tried to talk about it sort of just in terms of ideas, um, because it, it detached ideas from the spiritual often, as though it was just a set of contingencies that happened to to kind of end up happening, and therefore those ideas just kind of go this way or another, sort of like the genetic pool, you know. But what the problem with that is it doesn't connect those ideas to the spiritual, right? Scripture talks about sound doctrine and doctrines of demons, right? There, there really right. isn't a whole, I mean, again, there, the only place of overlap is the, the fact that the demonic has to take something away from the good creation in order to kind of live off of it. And so, so what was paganism in a sense? It well, after the fall, there is there is this which takes the good gift of creation, but does something less with it because it isn't it isn't serving the creator. It's some some creature, and usually demonic is is bound up with it. But let's take Christ, who comes in and basically uh, guts hell, if you will, right? Um, and he subverts paganism, takes everything back. Takes it's not really taking the spoils of the Egyptians. He's really taken back which belongs to uh, his authority. Um, and so there is no place to go at this point. So when the early developments of thought start to move away from Christianity, I tend to talk about it. You know, late medieval period. Of course, you could people can argue about when. What happens is a strange cocktail. On the one side, it takes something from Christianity that wasn't there with the old gods, this notion of of will that owes much more to the Hebraic, Islamic, and Christian line. It rips it out of the Christian context and then repaganizes it, if you will. So now you have the old gods, but running with something Christianity gave to the world and yet perverting it. You could almost say antichrist in the fullest sense of the word. It takes something that Christ brought to the world and flips it on its head rather than God, uh, you know, the, the creator of all things and the will of God being central. It's really become ends up becoming a projection of the will of humanity again. Um, now with a distortion of all those Christian principles that allows it to sell itself to a world conditioned by Christianity and then ends up revealing its true head. And uh, I mean, that's one of the ways that I've tended to see the combination of the old gods coming back and Christianity having to be, to be uh, I mean, having a, a fraud version of it sell that world. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the, the thing that is often lost upon apologists uh, and you know, well, uh, I think uh, intentioned people who talk about worldview is uh, th there's this um, failure to appreciate the the reality of of malicious, uh, powerful intelligences at work. Yeah. Um, it's as though if we could just kind of get everybody to buy into the correct presuppositions, everything will just be fine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, um, it, it, we're, we're not up against just ideas. Yeah. We're up against realities. Uh, and that's what should drive us not just to the Areopagus to argue, but to our knees to pray. Yeah. Uh, I, I think about that remarkable statement that Jesus made. I think it's in Matthew chapter 12, where he talks about, 
uh, demons who have been cast out who go to the dry places and then return home and, def- and discover that everything's been put in order, cl- swept yeah. clean. And he says, you know, the state of that uh, person is worse than uh, in the first case at the end. And then he says, then he applies it to his generation. He doesn't just say individuals. He's not just talking about people. He's talking about an entire, what we would call today, culture, yeah. uh, the, the moment in time. And we know what follows, uh, the fall of Jerusalem, which was just horrific. Yeah. And the, the Jewish-Roman wars, um, just in, you know, uh, remarkably brutal. Anyway. Yeah, that is actually the, the key parable that Khan bases his entire book on. He says, okay. what, what we have done in our culture is swept it clean of the old gods with Christianity. Now that Christianity is left, we've got an empty house. And yeah. that's why these old gods are coming back. Now, he's really hung up on the ancient Middle Eastern deities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we have to think about that, but there's more. I think there's a lot more to it. Mm-hmm. Before we go further, it might be worth noting a couple of things about the biblical attitude toward pagan deities. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's it's easy to look at Isaiah in his um, satire on making idols, you know, or Paul saying we know an idol is nothing, yeah. and then dismiss the the pagan gods as being nothing. They're mm-hmm. merely idols. Um, and you do see some references to that. The gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You do see some things like that. Yeah. But elsewhere, you see passages where it talks about the people of Israel sacrificing their children to demons. Hmm. Um, I, I think the way to think about this is that the idol itself has a, is a representation of a deity, and the idol itself has no powers, no yeah. has no significance. But that doesn't mean that there's not something behind it. Yeah. yeah. Um, in Hebrew, they use the word shedim. Um, for these these foreign gods, um, although you occasionally will find Elohim being used for them, of uh, the gods, um, uh, in the New Testament, the the term shadim is translated as a daimonis, mm-hmm. uh, from which we get the word demon. Mm-hmm. But that's not what the word meant in Greek. Yeah. Um, in Greek, the concept wasn't a demon; it was a divinity. Yeah, some sort yeah. of deity, yeah. um, either greater or lesser. So when Paul is preaching on the Areopagus um, and somebody said, what, what's his babbler talking about? Yeah. He seems to be advocating foreign daimonus, yeah. which yeah. our Bibles frequently translate foreign gods. Yeah. But it's the same word that we will translate as demon elsewhere. It, it yeah. just refers to some sort of divine creature. Yeah. Well, this reminds me of his Dark Materials, uh, Philip Pullman's series. Mm-hmm. In that series, I think there's something telling precisely at this point. If you've read the books, uh, you know that obviously uh, Pullman is an atheist and he's arguing uh, as an atheist. But one of the literary or sort of the, one of the devices he uses in the story is these uh, di- diamonds. You know, these, yeah. you know, each each character has a personal uh, uh, kind of uh, companion, diamond. yeah, yeah, yeah diamond, the companion that you know is instead, you know, who ha- he presents them as though there are representations of the kind of the personality of the person. But it's fascinating that um, 
whether he had any sense of what he was doing or not, uh, these two things are found together in those books. Um, I've never been t- as taken with Pullman as some people are. I, I think that you can't write uh, f- fantasy as an atheist. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, his premise was to take Paradise Lost to make Satan the real hero. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's what he was trying to do. Uh, I read the first book and did not read any for, any more than that. Yeah. Um, was not not terribly impressed. You know, yeah, yeah. but but I guess the point here is that scripture does not actually deny the existence of pagan small g gods, mm-hmm. and we have to keep in mind there's a difference between a capital G god and a small g god. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, one of the things that is important to realize, and this is a, a, a response to the atheists who say, you don't believe in Zeus, in Zeus, you don't believe in Thor, you don't believe in Odin. We just believe in one fewer God than you do. <laughs> um, the answer to that is that the word God is, um, it can mean different things. Yeah. When when you use God, the term God with reference to pagan deities, it does not mean the same thing as when you use God in a monotheistic context. Yeah, pagan yeah. deities, by definition, are not omnipotent. That's right. They're not omniscient. They are not all good. Read the mythologies. Yeah. You know, there, all of those kinds of things. So. Yeah. yeah, sorry. But Go just on. just just on that point, and that goes right back to the where you, you were mentioning Paul when he spoke on Areopagus, because the one thing he does to show, because they, they're arguing, okay, you're talking about this uh foreign, you know, deity. Um and and so let's just hear what this kind of babbler has to say. And one of the things he notes is is that he's going to appeal to the fact, like they did in the ancient world, that what we're dealing with something is not a new god. And it's not a strange four, and actually it's something much closer to you than any of your own deities can be. Why? Because it is, happens to be, this This was rare, and this is what the, the Judeo, Judeo-Christian contribution to that debate was, is that this one is, this is the first principle of all reality we're dealing with. This is the ancient of days. This is the oldest. This is the one that goes back the furthest, and this one created all things. You could not have that in a, of the of the lesser deities. The lesser deities, like you said, they they could either be opposed to everything else to show their transcendence, or they uh, stamped it with their kind of reason or order, but they had to presume that there was a a a, uh, a world out there that the God was a part of, where this God, the God of Christianity, is not part of the world, but is the very source of any world or any deity there could be. And this is something they didn't even have a category for, yeah, other well, than unknown. <laughs> I think the thing that is, um, you know, in view here is the this, this stuff that, that Heiser was talking about, you know, in the unseen realm, you know, um, the sort of divine council, um, the, so I think what we're, what we're wrestling with are principalities and powers, uh, as Paul refers to them in Ephesians. The thing that I find, uh, at least in certain circles, um, when you get outside of, say, Pentecostalism, is there's a there's a a willingness to concede that these these entities exist, but there's no real, I guess, p- approach to practical ministry 
or even theology that takes them into account. If you know what I get, what I'm getting at, um, it's just like we just well, we have to admit that they're there because they're in the Bible. But uh, let's talk about other things. Right. Yeah, and that's that's C.S. Lewis. There are two equal and opposite errors you can make with respect to the devil. One is to see him behind every bush, and the other is to make believe he doesn't exist. Satan's mm-hmm. happy either way you go. And just like many Christians are actual functional, functional atheists, a lot of Christians are actually also functional, well, materialists. They don't, yeah. they don't, you know, they may acknowledge this with their words, but they don't really act in any way as if, um, as if it's real. So, yeah, one, one point going back to what Tom was saying, one of the other unique things about uh, Judaism originally, now Christianity and Islam, is every other religion has origin stories for the deities. Mm-hmm. The Bible assumes God yeah. exists. It, it, it doesn't tell you where he comes from. He's just there. He's self-existent. Yeah. And that, that, again, sets these things apart. And that's the distinction between God, capital G, and God, lowercase g. Yeah. So, but the, but Scripture doesn't reject the idea that these lowercase g gods exist. It just says you shouldn't be worshiping them. Right. Um, you know, and, and it recognizes that uh, for the most part, uh, if not all of them, are, act in opposition to God. Yeah, right. Um, now, when you look at, I found Wolf's approach to this really interesting, because her argument again basically was the level of coordination you see across cultures, across countries, across industries, in terms of uh, imposing stuff during COVID, mm-hmm. was unprecedented. There's nothing like that in history. Um, and it could not simply be coordinated by human beings. Okay, so that was her way of getting into it. Um, and I, I find that really interesting. But one of the other sides of this uh, that I found, I read Khan's book, like I said, not, not terribly impressed with it. But when he's dealing with, with Asherah or Ishtar, who is a goddess that is associated heavily with sex, um, he can line up point by point, things about the Ishtar cult and stuff that's going on today up to and including the transgenderism stuff. I mean, and he went point by point all the way through the history of it and pulling up texts we have from the ancient Near East of Ishtar uh, under any of her various names that align almost exactly with what you see over the course of the sexual revolution and what follows. Yeah. Um, that was the thing that, that actually struck me about Khan's book. That's where I think he was the strongest in his argument. Uh, now, you don't necessarily need to say it is specifically Ishtar doing this, but um, there is really a, a spooky degree of uh, overlap uh, between what we see then and what we're seeing now. Well, let me just uh, kind of uh, speculate a little bit here with you uh, about this. So when we see the Lord uh, interacting with these uh, demonic uh, beings in Scripture, he um, addresses them. Um, There is a kind of naming that occurs at certain points. Um, I, I think that 
you know, one of the great disciplines uh, that we're encouraged to follow in, you know, Western um, approaches to reasoning and so forth, uh, it, it, there's a discour we're discouraged from, from uh, I guess, going into things that we can't uh, prove using reason or uh, empirical methods. Uh, but there's a, there's a kind of, I guess, um, defenselessness that we have if we can't name our foes. Yeah. Uh, if you, if you get my drift here, um, because when you can name something, it, you have at least some degree of, you know, a power to identify it and say, okay, this is not just, you know, in the case of this, this, this woman who is this, uh, uh, murderer at, at, the, at the church here in Nashville, Covenant Presbyterian. Well, we're, we, we're forced to resort to, well, she was uh, either unbalanced mentally mm -hmm. or she was, uh, uh, you know, had given herself over to some really bad ideas. Yeah. And then, and that's kind of where it stops. Yeah. We, yeah. We, we, it's hard for us to take the next step and say, you know, there was a, demonic possession that that yeah. we we can witness here yeah. um that's the next step that i think particularly those of us in the reform world have a hard time making because yeah. we're so committed to yeah. uh, what i just talked about before um reason uh un properly understood and empirical approaches to knowledge yeah i don't well, have an answer it's just yeah. uh, i just i just know that when you when you can't name something you you don't have an ability to defend yourself as well yeah yeah and uh one last point on that for um is is i think i mean i think i think you're right chris i mean we sense that in in most of the time it's easy it's just the jump off this person is unstable but when you're seeing i think and this is wolf's point when you're seeing this kind of mass delusion similar to what you saw take over germany and and uh, different periods in, in even more recent history where it started to become socially uniform in a just a I mean, you don't have a better word. I mean, Karl Barth, I mean, he was somebody not trained in supernatural Pentecostalism, said nothing other than just demons that needed to be cast out. Um, and, and this, I think, confront the only thing he was pushed up against is the lordship and victory of Christ. I mean, this this became this became the ultimate set of categories because all of the rest couldn't capture the reality that they're confronting and that it isn't a material reality at this point. It's given way to, to that which has reached its limits with our empiricism or rationalism. Um, on the other side, it's not irrational. It is something, number one, real because we're confronting it and we're seeing its manifestation. And secondly, scripture attests in a, in a, in a coherent way, even though it doesn't unpack the mystery there, um, that this is a reality that is there that Christ is Lord over, but does, you know, ha have its own sway in its own spheres. And, and, uh, and this is why scripture is always saying, be vigilant and pray, be vigilant and pray, watch and pray. Um, first of all, so you don't enter into temptation, so you don't get caught up in it. I mean, there is something for the church to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's huge, Tom. I think, you know, um, we've tried to muster really, you know, the best arguments we can over the last say, well, you know, a couple hundred years in defense of the faith and that, and all that's great. 
We had Doug mm-hmm. Rodeheist on the show. We talk about these things all the time. We try to analyze, uh, you know, ways people are thinking today. Uh, nevertheless, again, I just I come back to this 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 point, and I think this is what Wolf is saying. There's more to it than this. There's there's a there are real uh, uh, demons out there, uh, malicious intelligences, who really are out to get you. Um, and if you have if you if that really sinks in, you're going to be more prayerful. <laughs> and you're going to do exactly what you said, Tom. You're going to pray, lead us not to temptation. I think that's what we're getting at here. Yeah. I think that, again, uh, the way we tend to interpret lead us not to temptation is we're, we're afraid of sensuality, that yeah. we'll find ourselves in a situation or maybe in some kind of situation where we're tempted to, to uh, lie or steal or whatever. And all those things are terrible, but, uh, but the, they leave out the tempter. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, and it, you can make a good argument from the technical el- elements of the Greek grammar that the proper translation is, but deliver us from the evil one yeah. rather than from evil as a generic. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, the, the, where, where this got driven home to me is some time ago we had a, a pastor from Sierra Leone on the show, mm-hmm. and I was driving with him somewhere. And he said to me, you know, on the plane, I was seated next to two lesbians. And they were, the impression I get is they were sort of all over each other during the flight. And his comment was, you know, I've heard of this in Africa, but I've never Mm -hmm. seen it. It's demonic. Mm -hmm. And he said said it in just such a matter of fact way that, that it really caught me because my immediate reaction was, can you say that? Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, you know, he's right. And, and when you take a look at, at the Ishtar thing, just a, a couple of little, little facts about Ishtar. Um, although she normally presents as a she, she can switch to a he when she, she wants to. Um, <laughs> Uh, she functions as both a male and female prostitute. Um, she tends to betray her lovers. Um, most of them end up having very unpleasant fates. Her priests and priestesses were gender nonconforming. At her ceremonies, at the events, you know, the, the festivals, uh, they would dress with the right side of their body as men and the left side of their body as women. I had a student at Central who did that. Hmm. Um, there, uh, they. One of her things is she can turn a man into a woman and a woman into a man. Yeah, you've got all of these things that are just they they line up straight on the on the transgender thing. Um, Khan connects some of this to homosexuality. He's probably right there. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it. Like I said, the the analogs that you find are are genuinely surprising. And she also says that anyone who who spurns her or rejects her, she will destroy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's if, if you think about the kind of the rootedness of of you know, the fallen creature will, whether demonic or human, 
I mean, what what does it have to do if it doesn't get its way? Well, it has it has to be about destroying the creation, as a, because they can't destroy the creator, right? And so right. the only place to go other than create is to death works and destroy. Um, but the, notice the selling point. I, I I mean, we've gone over it over over it and over it, uh, you know, enough. But the selling point in the West is that this has to do with your dignity. In other words, you're oppressed. If you cannot be the sel- the auto creator of yourself through embracing an expression of yourself and having it validated by a society which you determine is right, wrong, good, bad, and nature itself is not a premise that you have to subscribe to if technology allows you to alter it if you want it. So both the you know, the idealistic line that's, you know, that says basically I transcend my body through my inner subjectivity, uh, my, my exercise of my subjective will, or the material line that says basically that my will to survive can direct my evolution in a way that I can self-define and use technology to make everyone else go along with it. I mean, we've basically tied the dignity of the human being bound up with their choice, and we've said all choices are dignified if they make it freely. And the, the, the one that is evil is anyone to prevent someone from making any kind of choice that doesn't agree with what they want. And so basically we've made Satan's notion of the will the centerpiece of what it means to be a human being and dignity and an oppressor, anyone who puts a limit on it, especially God who says, I'm the Lord, your God no other God shall you have before me, not even your will. Yeah, what this does is it cuts us off from the past in uh, various ways that are really good. I mean, that I mean, in the sense that the past is good. So, uh, you know, when we think about heritage or patrimony, we're cut off from that when the locus of meaning is our choice rather than what we're given. So givenness is something that uh, enriches us in, in different ways. So uh, we receive our patrimony, something is handed down to us from our, from our uh, forebears. Then there's wisdom. Um, that's tied up with the past. If we cut ourselves off from the past, we cut ourselves off from wisdom. And then uh, there's, no, uh, uh, justific- there's no reason to be grateful because yeah. there's nothing that you've received yeah. that you should be thankful for. I mean, it's, yeah. it's something that, as you noted, you're auto-generating. It's all about you. It's all about your choices. Yeah. Um, getting, getting back to this no, the, to, to the reality that, that we find ourselves in a world that we did not make, uh, and we've been given all these good things, there should be uh, gladness uh, on our part, and yet we resent it. We resent yeah. the givenness of things. Um, now, Getting back again to this malicious uh, intelligence, uh, these intelligences uh, who are at work, uh, you know, there is the, the, the sort of the warping of the mind. That's part of it. The warping of the will. That's another part of it. Um, but again, uh, can we uh, just simply uh, succeed by isolating people or do we have to, in some sense, actually wrestle with principalities and powers and if we do uh what does that mean i i think it means prayer uh but 
that that's where my mind keeps going with this, as you can tell, because yeah. I'm, I'm wanting to, to know as a pastor how I can wrestle with these, yeah. uh, re, you know, real creatures. These and they're creatures. I mean, they were made. Yeah. They're created. Um, and when they're so much bigger than me and smarter than me, um, I mean, who am I to think I can outsmart them or out argue them? <laughs> right. Uh, we have to fall back upon what we're given in Christ to do, to do the resisting. Any thoughts on any of this? I, I didn't have a chance to get into Naomi's article at all. I, I doubt if she's getting into any of that. I, it strikes mm-hmm. me as she, from what you said, Glenn, she's just making the case that there's more to this than just human. Uh, well, actually her most recent substacks, she is, she gave a tribute to the Geneva Bible. Yeah, really? And she she says there's no audio version of it, so she's creating one. She's reading a few chapters and posting them. <laughs> wow. Because she says that the Geneva Bible actually captures something about the Hebrew that other translations don't. Yeah. Interesting. Having to do with the way God hmm. God as as personal interacting with and struggling with his people together. Um yeah. you know, so in any event, that's uh uh, she, she seems to be moving in a very interesting direction. Yeah, um, well, I've, I've heard it said that, uh, you know, the Reformed are the most Hebrew of the Christians, <laughs> you know, because yeah. of her emphasis upon uh, covenant. But interesting, yeah. 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 But um, I think the, you know, the, the place everybody goes, to the spiritual warfare passage is Ephesians 6, you know, yeah. the full armor of God. And... The problem with most treatments of that is they focus so much on the image of the armor and what the pieces are and what they do and how they function as armor and how that applies spiritually and all of that, that they miss the end. Yeah. Yeah. The the thing that Paul finishes with is a, a, a sentence that includes, if I remember right, four different words that point to praying. Yeah, right. So it's put on the full armor of God and pray, 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 and pray. Yeah. Right, right. It yeah. seems to me that, that that's what people miss. And that right. that for us is the essential step that we need to get serious about that, frankly, we are not. Yeah. yeah. So what is it about us uh, that keeps us from that? Any thoughts? I mean, is it just <laughs> we're lazy? Uh, you know, I, I think we do it. I think we bought into the Enlightenment idea that um, events in the physical world have to have physical causes. Yeah. yeah. And right. thus we completely ignore the supernatural dimension of life and we completely ignore the role of prayer in shaping the world around us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think similarly, we're mechanistic and and especially in in that way and and we i mean i think we are we're spiritually illiterate other than the extremes we work with especially in christianity we work with a very frat in the protestant world in particular very fragmented spirituality and theology are very disconnected worship spirituality and life are very disconnected they're compartmentalized and and rather i mean classically christianity try to wed these together theology is really a form of worship and prayer it isn't firstly about cognitive it has that dimension but it isn't firstly about putting together a set of ideas and then finding the way they logically fit it's about making sure that our the orientation of our worship and prayer are the right in the right direction um in in the right one 
And, um, and then I think similarly, all over scriptures, that notion of vigilance, you know, and, and watching and praying. Um, and, and that, yes, the, the evil one does go about seeking whom he will devour. And a, a church that is not, you know, that connected to, um, you know, its source in God is one obviously that's, that, that is, is caught up in, in the impact of the spiritual you know, delusions that are going on all around them. It's like your eyes need clearing. And if you notice the church as well, this is something very hard for us because it can go in extreme directions. But we've talked about it before. Um, the spiritual life, it's, it's, it's classical Christian forms of ascetism, for example, not the extreme stuff where you're starving yourself to death and you're seeing a bunch of things. But in the way in which our passions are ordered the right way, our inner life and our outer life are oriented. Um, those things, I mean, we, it's easy to be as, as moderns to be very lazy about or think they don't matter. Um, but they are where our heart lies and they're where our, our, our passions. I mean, if, if you're constantly giving into, for example, you know, your weaker side, <laughs> um, you're easily manipulated by it, by external things. Um, for example, if you're not, you know, spiritually oriented towards towards God and Christ the right way and practicing certain disciplines, then when you people spend time on the Internet, they spend too much time on the Internet or they're looking at things that they shouldn't be. They're, they're e more easily tempted, if you will, um, when the kind of the point of their ship is not, you know, in the running condition of their ship is not, you know, oriented for for safe, long travel. I've got a couple of couple of things that. Uh... I'd like to to uh, mention here that uh, are the uh, sort of uh, things that I've learned through some conversations here the past couple of days. So one one of those things has to do with the events at uh, Covenant Church here in Nashville. Um, my son, who's on staff there, uh, described to me the what what occurred, and and they did everything right. In other words, all the doors were locked. Uh, they barricaded the kids in the room. It just so happened that those three kids were out of a classroom when it happened. Mm -hmm. That's why they were they were uh, vulnerable. But everything else uh, that occurred, um, they did everything right. What I'm getting at is that even our best, uh, you know, sort of approaches uh, in which we endeavor to foresee every possible event event, yeah. event and prepare for those things um are are not foolproof I, that's my only point that i'm yeah. not i don't have any criticism for the folks there i think that yeah. they, they they've handled the situation as about as well as you could possibly hope to handle it from from the standpoint of organization communication all those different kinds of things but even when you do everything right bad things can happen to you yeah. And um, the demonic is something that you can't plan for in that way. Yeah. I'm getting at. So this 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 shooter obviously uh, was um, a person whose thinking, uh, whose motives were shaped by demonic forces. Um, another thing, uh, I had a conversation with a guy who is a. Uh, business owner in Greenville and he's actually Russian and his father or grandfather was a Russian uh, mm -hmm. pastor who had been, uh, who had been con um, sent to the gulags. He, mm -hmm. His his sentence was for 23 years. 
And then when in the mid nineties, you know, when everything was falling apart and the Russian authorities were trying to appease the West and and they were looking for help, they were letting people out of the, out of the gulags. And this, this guy's grandfather was brought into a, um, into a room where the, 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 the commander or the, whoever is, I don't know the correct term for who was in charge. Uh, this person said, uh, you know, we're going to be releasing these other people, but we're not going to be releasing you. And he pointed at this guy's grandfather. Uh, you're, you're going back into the gulag and I'm going to sign this paper that sends you back. And, uh, this guy's grandfather said, you better not do that because there's an angel standing right behind you and he will strike you down if you do. The moment <laughs> that guy put his pay, pay, his pen to the paper, I was told, he had a heart attack and died on the spot. Wow. Well, as you can imagine, the the next in command said, you go. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're free to leave. But, but this is a, a spiritual reality. You know, there was a, a benevolent spiritual presence in that room. Uh, who who inter, who interceded in a in a in a real direct yeah. way powerfully to save that Russian pastor uh, and allowed him to go back to his people and serve his church. Yeah, Ken and Andrew White, the vicar of Baghdad, um, talks about people in Baghdad in the middle of the war zone and all the anti-Christian stuff that was going on, regularly seeing angels. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. You know, it, yeah. it, it's something that I've never experienced, I, you know, yeah. but I have no reason to doubt it because Scripture tells us that this is a reality. Scripture has an awful lot to say about angels, which, yeah. again, is one of these things we, we've talked about this before, I believe. Uh, we as Reformed people tend to completely ignore that. And yeah. the reason is that I suspect we think, well, God is sovereign. He's all-powerful and all that. He doesn't need anybody to do his work for him. So we can safely ignore angels, except Scripture talks a lot about them. Yeah. Yeah. Sovereign. See that, 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 that either or tendency in, 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 um, in reform thinking is not classically Christian. It's not even classically reformed, but it, it has crept right. in. That's the kind of all zero sum game that if God is doing something, therefore, how about the fact that it, when an angel's doing it, God's doing it through the angel <laughs> and it allows the angel to participate in the gift of creation. Right. And yet God is sovereign over it, both as creating the angel and the purpose and the meaning and everything else. There's, there's no, there's no either or in God, we live, move and have our being. I mean, it, they they don't yeah they they see they see sometimes God is just a super agent alongside everything else rather than the agent that's the source of everything else and includes it in his 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 work of of providence governance and and ministry and he sends angels to minister to Christ I mean <laughs> you know <laughs> well you know it it. You end up actually, if you're going to follow through on this logically, if you're going to say God doesn't need angels, he does things, you know, he's all powerful, he doesn't need angels, he'll just do it himself. If that's your line of reasoning about angels, it is also logically got to be your line of reasoning about people. And we turn into um, in, into hyper-Calvinists, like the guys when William yeah. Carey told uh, the, yeah. the particular Baptists that he wanted to go to India, they said to him, "God, if God wants to convert the Indians, he will do it without the aid of you or me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that's where it goes. Yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, and again, that, but, you know, this is why, I mean, yes, they've had extremes in history, but classic Christian forms and even the classic liturgies that grow out of, for example, Orthodoxy and even Roman Catholicism, they still have engagements with it. They have people who do exorcisms. I mean, they're not people who shy away from the fact that there are the demonic and the angels. Again, we wouldn't agree with all of the theology going on there, but the one thing they haven't lost in those forms is the reality of those things that need to be engaged because they do haunt the world in in their own way. And the Catholic Church right now is busy trying to recruit more exorcists. Yeah. Yeah. Now, getting back to the, to the, to the article by Naomi Wolf um, and these, you know, these um, ancient gods and their return, Baal, it's kind of clear where we see the, not Baal, uh, um, Molech, where this, the connection we see to abortion, um, then Asherah and the connection that we see with transgenderism and the sexual revolution. You said he was weakest on Baal, um, can you tell us what he, why he was weak on Baal, and what what did he think, uh, you know, we could see as a sign of Baal's return, and then also maybe give us a little sense of Glenn what you might think if there is a, a something to note in this area that you think would be a better way to look at it. Yeah, I um, he, what my impression was, and I read the book a couple of weeks ago, uh, but my impression on Baal was it was just sort of a, a shotgun approach where all of these different trends you just sort of threw in without making a real direct connection to Baal. Um, so I was, you know, I was, you know, he said, well, Baal turns into Jupiter. He's the king of the gods. He's a storm god, all of these kinds of things. But I didn't see any way in which he actually connected that into the world we're in now. I didn't, you know, with Asherah, he did a very good, or Ishtar, he did a really good job with that. You know, these are the texts. This is what we're seeing, okay? He just said, well, you know, all of these things are manifestations of of Baal, uh, which is a better pronunciation than Baal, Um, Baal. uh, But um, he never explained why. He never really drew those connections. That's why I thought that particular section was weak. Hmm. I'm also not entirely sure it's necessary to just work with three Middle Eastern deities. Yeah. You know, um, you know, he says Ishtar turns into Aphrodite or Venus and turns into Freya in the north. And he sees all of these as the same being. That may or may not be the case. Um, but you've got the, the, I think that, that he, my my general sense is that he's too restrictive, um, too very specific to the ancient Near East that, you know, there's no reason why we couldn't talk about, for example, Odin, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, or any number of these these um, other pagan deities that are are being resurrected and being uh, worshipped now. You, you, you kind of see it with with tribal deities, especially with the enhancement of racial division, right? Um, right. I mean, you even saw that. I remember one of the things during the the, the time in um, First World War in Germany when Karl Barth was a student. Um, the reason I keep mentioning this is I did my dissertation on this period. So, um, but when he was a student, a lot of his professors um, from Germany, Adolf von Harnack, all the liberals, right, um, they signed on to the First World War and said this is a godly war. 
And and Bart was shocked. He's a Swiss anyway, so they, he didn't understand the politics of it. But he said, this sounds a lot more like Wotan than Jesus Christ. And I think that this was kind of, again, that that return of something under the guise of it being, you know, for our people. Um, but the tribal the tribal dimensions creeping through. Yeah. Actually, there's some kind of funny instances of that throughout church history. Um, my favorite example is a chronicle uh, by a guy named Raoul Glaber uh, from the 12th century, maybe. Um, I'd have to double check his dates. But there was a war going on in Germany between the Holy Roman Emperor and some of his um, uh, the nobles that were theoretically under him. And uh, one of the sides appealed, prayed to the Virgin Mary for help. Uh, and she showed up in armor and fought on the battlefield. <laughs> now, you, you can't tell me that there isn't a remnant of Valkyrie still in their thinking at that point. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I mean... I, I think that the argument, where, where I would go with this, is that I think that the argument that um, we are seeing a resurgence, not just in the form of neo-paganism of these people, either inventing their own religions or trying to resurrect old ones, but we're, we're genuinely seeing malevolent spiritual forces at work to dismantle anything that resembles Christian civilization. Um, that are in the process of destroying lives and enslaving people, um, that are just that that are just frankly evil. Um, yeah. Whether we identify these as specific deities from the past or not, we've got to acknowledge the fact that these things are realities. That this is what is going on, and it seems to me that that as as I look at this as a historian. I cannot think of any period of time in which we have seen such a complete overturn of established worldviews, established norms, established um, uh, ideas of morality. Uh, there, there's, there has never been anything like this where in a 50-year period, the world has been turned completely upside down. Good has become evil. Evil has become good. It just, I, I can't explain it. The, you know, I mean, I do all the historical analysis and these ideas came from here and all yeah. that. I do that. Mm -hmm. But I can't explain why they took root and flourished so much in our culture. That is something that it seems to me is inexplicable. Uh, apart from Wolf's yeah. idea that, you know, we're dealing with genuine malevolent spiritual forces. Yeah, I think that's a great, uh, you know, I think... Uh argument for the limits of argument. <laughs> what, I mean, what I mean by that is um, I, I think the thing that people would say to us, uh, you know, who are, are not willing to follow our, our thinking on this is you're just reaching for explanations because um, you don't have enough information to work with or whatever, or you don't understand sort of the internal logic of certain things. I think, though, uh, over the course of our show, at least I hope we have demonstrated that we 
are conversant enough in the intellectual trajectory of the West to say that, no, we, we have a pretty good sense <laughs> of where things have come from and, and how arguments have been made. And But what we've seen develop here is a, a level of self-destructive um, active activity that speaks to well, it, it actually undermines one of the big arguments for secularism, and that's self-interest. It's just so evident that people are behaving in ways that are not in their self-interest, um, and in the in, in in the interest of their of the of the world, or you know, their progeny, or the future. You know, progressives are supposed to be all about the future. I mean, tell me how this makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it is clearly a revolt against the gift of being if you want to push it all the way up to the level of ontologically basic. It is a revolt against the gift character of, of created being on every the, level. The, the, the revolutionaries are not just humans. <laughs> that, I think yeah. that's the point that we're making here. Yeah. The revolutionaries are not just humans, and we're not yeah. the biggest and most powerful of the revolutionaries. We are yeah. uh, subject to... Uh, the prince of the power of the air. We, we are yeah. uh, under the influence of these gods, lowercase g. And I think that the argument is intuitive. It's it's not as though uh, you can take it and put it in a test tube and boil it and, and get certain yeah. results that you can re reproduce over and over again. Yeah. You know, there's this, and it's, but it's, it's not just simply logical either. In other words, we're looking at things that are, yeah, uh, illogical. And and the other part of it is it's transnational. Yeah. yeah, it it incorporates government, education, media, and big tech. Yeah, mm -hmm. all of this stuff is operating with an inhuman degree of coordination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's the fact of that revolt and resentment that is so widespread, and it doesn't originate in our natural endowments to survive and live. So this is this is proof. I mean, even if you took the Darwinist reading of re reality down the line, survival and and doing everything you can to continue and continue your civilizations is at your best interest, not destroying your reproductive and your future. So this oh, yeah. revolt and resentment is clearly demonic. It's clear. Yeah, there's not, there's nothing yeah. in this that you can reconcile with Darwinism as far as I can see. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's about as anti-Darwin as you can be. Yeah. Anyway, we've got to that point where we should start uh, to bring this in to a landing, as as I like to say. Uh, <laughs> anything you want to say, uh, Glenn, as we as we wrap up? This has been your show, and it's been a great one. Well, I, I would just say that um, I think that the Substack article may be behind a paywall, but you get a free seven day subscription that you can then cancel if you don't want to subscribe to Wolf Substack. So I would really encourage you to read it, and particularly the last part of it. The very end of it, she gives an enormous list of ways in which really important institutions in Western culture have given themselves over to seriously demonic imagery. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, a lot of it is stuff I'd never, I, I'd never heard of, but 
um, you know, the common, the opening of the Commonwealth Games. You know, there's a ritual there. There's a ritual at a, you know, in Switzerland where they're opening something there. I mean, one after another. And her descriptions yeah. of what is going on, it looks, frankly, demonic. Yeah. And, yeah. and this is all over the place. So I'd right. encourage you to read that last section. If you've got any doubts about what, what we're saying, read the article, but pay particular attention to that last part. Yeah, we'll, we'll put that link uh, in the show notes along with several other links to the conferences that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, but also to our Patreon account. So if you appreciate, uh, you know, this, this podcast and uh, you want to support our work, uh, we appreciate that there are costs that we incur. We don't take any money. Uh, all of the, all the money that comes in goes out to make the show uh, available. Um, there are the production costs, uh, the, just the site costs, maintaining our site, th- all those things. So if you would like to be a patron, uh, please follow the link in the show notes and you'll learn uh, how to do that. Anyway, thanks again uh, for listening to the Theology Podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week with another uh, fabulous and interesting and engaging conversation. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might also enjoy the new book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, now available on Amazon.